production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Jennifer Rudolph Walsh was a board member at the talent agency WME and ran the agency's worldwide literary speakers and conference divisions. Jennifer's department published over 200 books a year, half of those landing on the New York Times bestseller list. Her clients include Oprah Winfrey, Glennon Doyle, Brene Brown and Sheryl Sandberg. Jennifer's gift is telling stories and honing in on the ones that matter the most. In this intimate conversation, Jennifer and I discuss living in integrity, the importance of sharing the painful stories and finding the sacred pause. Every person has a story and that story matters. I love sharing stories on a human to human level. So what I love about stories is that it's an inside to inside match. And when I share the story with you about my parents' divorce, you're seeing my heart and I'm seeing your heart in the way that you're experiencing it. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Jennifer Rudolph Walsh is the author of Hungry Hearts, Essays on Courage, Desire and Belonging. In its essence, this conversation is about our common quest for meaning, purpose and direction. My hope is that it allows you to help identify the blocks you have created in your own life and sets you on the path to healing that we all wish to seek. Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, you have spent your life telling other people's stories, but today we are here to hear your story. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? Oh, sure. And that's true. I have told, spent my lifetime telling other people's stories and it's always a little bit of a, of a jolt when it's time for me to sort of share my own story. Um, I've always thought everybody has a story and that story matters, but I didn't really think about how it related to me. So it's very kind of you to be asking that question. Um, I grew up in, um, in a sort of a Jewish enclave in Long Island, New York, called the Five Towns. And I bring up the fact that it was a Jewish enclave because until I was 11 years old, I never met somebody who wasn't Jewish. That's how cloistered my life was, which is so impossible to imagine. My grandparents lived a few streets away and many people in this town had grandparents and even great grandparents that lived very close. And it was a very small, loving, but extremely uh, narrow focused place to grow up. And when I was 11 years old, it seemed like my life came to a crashing end. Although like many endings, it really was just a beautiful beginning when my parents told us they were getting divorced. And as a result of that divorce, my mom moved me into New York City and she needed to work and she needed to be closer to places where she could you know, create opportunity. And I found out that there was a whole wide world out there. People of every color, of every gender identity, of every sexual identity, of every belief, a million kinds of, of coffee and pasta and music. And it was no turning back for me. And how did it affect you, your parents' divorce? Oh, well, you know, as a 55-year-old woman, it sounds a little bit silly, but it really did divide my life into before and after. Now, I understand all sorts of terrible things befall people in their childhoods that are diagnosed as childhood trauma. 
Um, but, you know, for, for me, living in that very cloistered world, I never knew anybody who was divorced. I never actually heard the word before. I didn't know what it meant, but um, it was a complete shattering before and after experience for me. And my parents were different than other people's. I think there's that famous quote about how all happy families are the same are happy in the same way, but all unhappy families are unhappy in a completely different way. And so my family, um, they were very peaceful. I'd never heard my parents fight and I had no sense that there was any problem between them. And so um, there's, a, there's a story that I've shared about um, my parents telling us that we were going to have a, a family meeting after school. And that just sounded like the coolest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, a family meeting. I got to school that day and I asked everybody, like, what happens at a family meeting? And the consensus was I was going on vacation and that a family meeting was set to discuss where we would go. So, I mean, I was so happy to have this early information that I didn't think my siblings would have. So I jumped right into action and I decided to advocate that uh, Disney, Disney World was actually an educational experience. And I borrowed a yellow legal pad and I wrote all these notes. I interviewed people that had been to Disney World and I heard about this exhibit called It's a Small World. It sounded amazing. And I came prepared to advocate for my decision, for my choice, when my parents told us that they were having a divorce. And I just remember clutching that yellow pad to my chest, just feeling so stupid and I, I can just cry still thinking about it because oh, I was so like, sad. how how could I have been so naive, you know, and and how could I have missed the signs and that feeling of being blindsided? It just it just blew my world apart, really. Isn't it interesting though, you being in the business of telling people stories, but also like as children, the stories that that we believe and are exposed to. And in a sense, you know, I know that you have three children and I've got two young children. And it's a funny thing because you want to keep them sheltered because you don't want them to see the darkness of the world, especially at a young age. You want them to be children. But there is that thing, like when parents do get divorced, as common as it is, it's still unbelievably full on. Thank you. I mean, I, I think that, that we do have that balance, right, between wanting our children to live in a, in a bubble of, you know, a pink bubble of love and connection and purpose. But at the same time, we do have to prepare our children for, for truth mm. and for reality. And I, I would think that if there was one thing that maybe my parents could have done differently, I think would have been to sort of bring us more inside the dynamic. Yes. Um, so I think that it was a very old-fashioned time. You know, my parents themselves were raised in the 50s. And so although I was raised in the 70s, they still sort of had this belief that you don't have anything nice to say. You don't say anything at all. And you don't fight in front of the children. You don't disagree in front of the children. And I think that there is some value to not fighting in front of the children. But I, I with my children, I'm very honest about the differences that my husband and I have and about some of the challenges. And, um, you know, I don't think that my children would ever be caught unaware if something happened between my husband and I, mm. because we've been so authentic. You know, we've been so known. Yes. And I think that is very important. How did you go then, Jennifer, from living in Long Island in this sheltered life to moving to New York <laughs> to then getting such a, an amazing job being a literary agent? How did that work out for you? Okay, well, there's a lot of steps in between, but what I would say is that I, you know, if you look at my high school yearbooks in, in New York City, even my middle school yearbooks, so it was, it was always people saying, thank you so much for listening to my story. Thank you for encouraging me to keep a diary. Thank you for, you know, telling me to speak to my mother about my feelings. And so, you know, I wasn't a good student but I was a student of the of humanity mm. and I didn't imagine there would ever be a way to make a living at that. But I felt from a very early age that when somebody shared their story with me, it was like a tattoo on their, on my heart. And, you know, I would love more than anything, like Sarah, if you called me and said, Oh, well, I'm going through this thing. 
my favorite thing would be to connect you to another friend of mine that had also gone through this thing so that you would feel less alone. And I would even do it with people's parents. Like I had no, I had no <laughs> intimidation. I would just get right in there, you know? <laughs> and um, so I certainly didn't imagine that I could make a living doing that, but I did know that I had, I had a certain kind of calling and a certain kind of excitement where stories were concerned. And so, um, so I would say that I, um, I pursued a few other things. My dad was a lawyer, so I just assumed I would be a lawyer too. To go back to the Jewish thing, there is this phrase, which is the gift of the gab. And that was me. I had the gift of the gab. And so I just assumed that like being a lawyer would be the way to kind of to target myself. But my first summer out of college, I worked at a law firm and oh my God, I mean, I hated every minute of it. You know, I talk about, I've talked about finding purpose and one of the, the keys to purpose in my, in my opinion is what are you doing when time flies? You know, when hours have gone by and you haven't looked at the clock. Well, the flip side of that is what are you doing when every minute feels like an hour? You know, yes. it's like, so so that was that was that summer as a paralegal for me, where I just felt like, wow, this is a mismatch. This is a real mismatch because while I didn't have the language for it, I don't care about like proof. Mm. I care about how it feels. I care about the lived experience. And so it was actually the opposite, but it ended up to be a breadcrumb in its own way because it pushed me in a different direction. So I ultimately got the next summer a job as an, a literary agent's intern. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what a literary agent was. I didn't know what an intern was. In fact, I, I, I really thought that um, literary agents just had lunch with people and were very fancy. <laughs> I didn't realize that they read manuscripts and they only represented what they loved and what they saw a vision for. And so I started to work with her as an intern and I never left. She hired me to work full-time at the end of that summer, and I worked my senior year from my dorm room, and I ultimately graduated on a Saturday and went to work for her that Monday. Wow. And essentially, it was really one job. I mean, I, I, down the road, I bought that business from her, and a few years later, I merged, I, I sold that business to William Morris, which at the time was the oldest agency um, in the world, having been founded in 1898. And then I was party to um, merging William Morris with Endeavor and forming WME. So in the 30 years that I worked, I really only had one job interview and essentially one job. Isn't that phenomenal? And it is really interesting because when I was doing research for this interview, something just drew me to you and hence why I contacted you. But then I thought there's this amazing synergy between your life and my life as well in the sense that I went through school and I liked it and it was all right, but I love talking to people and I love telling people stories. And obviously we do completely different things, but at the same sense, I found this, just this love in listening to people. And when I was listening to them, I didn't even need to give anything to have anything back for my voice to be heard. It was about hearing their stories and making them feel like that they'd been recognized. And I think that within itself is just such an important thing. And I really believe that storytelling, as you would know, it can help so many people. I mean, when someone's story is told, like us speaking today, and there is a reflection to someone else in that story that they can relate to, and for that moment, they feel comfort in listening to the fact that they are not alone or that a piece of information is being said that they can then take and use in their everyday life that they may never have thought about before. I mean, what an absolute gift is that? Absolutely. It helps us scaffold our, scaffold our own experiences. And so it's not just the, the person who's sharing their story that's served. It's the listener that is served as well. Because in witnessing somebody else's full humanity, it helps us actually come to understand our own Yes. And I agree. I'm just, I, honestly, your letter was so moving to me because um, I myself am actually in something I'm calling a sacred pause right now, which is, um, you know, the space in between my inhale and my exhale. I left my work 
uh, in January of 2020. And I thought I would take a few weeks to sort of find myself. And then I would just jump right into my next chapter because I'm so excellent at being a human doing. But the last thing in the world I wanted was to be a human being. I mean, I would have done anything not to be still. But, you know, the universe had a different plan for me and COVID hit and I ultimately realized the thing I needed to do more than anything was to be still. And um, so during the last two and a half years, I've been so careful about the things that I, that I do that actually, you know, that actually eat into my stillness, into my peace. And your letter was so beautiful. And I could see that we have a shared mission yeah. and it, it really it, it inspired me. It really inspired me. So I think that is the power of storytelling to connect I, people with, with completely different lived experiences, but a shared heart. It's so true. And I'd love to know, considering what you've done in your life, what do you believe is a good story? What makes a good story? Well, let's try to make a distinction if we can yeah. between a story that matters mm. and a story that should be published. Yes. So... I know that's a confusing one, right? Because people think that every story that's a quote unquote good story should be a published story. I don't agree with that. I do think that every person has a story and that story matters. It mm. matters to the world. It matters to the world. And so I love sharing stories on a human to human level. Um, there's a great AA uh, phrase, stop stop comparing your insides to other people's outsides. So what I love about stories is that it's an inside to inside match. You know, it kind of breaks away yeah. all of the, all of the decorations that we see on social media. And when I share the story with you about my parents' divorce, you're seeing my heart and I'm mm. seeing your heart in the way that you're experiencing it. And so I think it's a, it's an antidote to this anxiety and separation we feel when we're only looking at people's glossy photos and imagining the incredible life that they're living and the whole horrible, sad life that we're living. So I, I think that stories are the antidote to, to separation and to anxiety and all of these things that come from thinking that we're separate from each other when really we're the same and we're together. Yes. So everybody has a story and that story matters. So let's put that in one, in one, in one drawer. In the other drawer is publishing your story. And, you know, books are sacred and they're mm. art. So not every person's story should be a book, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't learn. Everybody should learn the beats of their story. People don't know their stories. They just don't know their stories. And I have an interesting example. I, I often like to give people a prompt, like at a dinner, you know, there's six people at a dinner and I'm there. Sarah, there'll be a prompt whether you like it or not. <laughs> and people, you know, roll their eyes, but then an hour later, we're all best friends because it's like all the bullshit falls away and, mm -hmm. you know, you're just sharing stories. But people often don't think they have a story. And we recently, I said to a woman at a, at a, at a, 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 a lunch, you know, tell, let's use the prompt, tell me about that scar. And she said, oh, I don't really have a story about a scar. Oh, wait, yes, I do. And then she proceeded to tell me this incredible story about her bipolar father who had died by suicide and how he was, he was just swinging her around by her feet and she loved it. But then he smashed her face into a coffee table and she was bleeding, but she didn't want him to know she was bleeding because she didn't want the fun to stop. Now, she didn't think she had a story about a scar. Yeah. We it's just don't know. <laughs> it's it, it's it's unbelievable though how and I've noticed this you know you gave her that prompt but that prompt was so important and the question sometimes is just as important as the answer totally agree the invitation yeah I, I completely agree I mean it's I like to say it's a small hinge that opens a giant door yes right because I mean I could have asked a different prompt that maybe would have taken us in a very different direction. But what I will say is that any thoughtful prompt that isn't like a yes or no, or an opportunity to virtue signal, any thoughtful prompt is going to take you inside. Yes. And once you're in there, you kind of go, Oh, wow. You know, tell me more about your, tell me more about your father's bipolar yeah. episodes. Okay. Now we're in, now we're, now we're insides to insides. Mm. You said something about how the story needs to come from the scar and not the wound. And that is so 
profound. And I, I was talking about it the other day with someone after I, I heard you say that. And it reminded me of, I interviewed this girl once who had, uh, I think that she was in a fire and 80% of her body was burnt. And I was told before, you can't talk about the fire. Even though it happened, I think a decade ago or something, you still can't bring up the fire with her. And I remember thinking, oh, but what are we going to talk about? Like, that's kind of the biggest thing. And then I reflected and I thought, no, of course, if that is not a scar yet and it is still a wound, as it would be, because I mean, how horrific, then every time you're bringing that up, she is being re-traumatised by telling Correct. that story. And I remember Correct. actually I interviewed Joe Dispenza and he was saying, he said this beautiful line that trauma becomes wisdom when there is no pain attached. And it, was, it reminded me of what you were saying. If we're still repeating the story and we haven't healed, our mind doesn't know the difference between that story happening five years ago and out and living that story today when we're retelling it. Once we've healed from that story, the wisdom comes and we're able to share it. And I just think that's so profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not only um, does the wisdom come, but the ability to shine the light for others. Yes. You know, it's, you know, a friend of mine pointed out to me that the word compassion actually has compass yeah. at the beginning of it, which is so wild and beautiful wow. because... You know, Compass says, here, come this way. Like, you'll be okay. This is what happened to me. I'm okay and you'll be okay too. I think that sympathy is more, which is also important, but it's more like, oh, this thing happened to you. Oh my God, that sounds so awful. It sounds so hard. But, you know, compassion says we're in this together and, and, and you know, and good things are going to still happen and we're going to be resilient and we're going to heal. And, or it says, you're not your mistakes and I'm not mine. I know that you've lived your life being a very authentic person and that's a, a very important to you, which I mean, in the world that you're in, it can be a mixture of all sorts of types. For people that don't know, you've helped publish books or published books for Oprah, Brene Brown, Sheryl Sandberg, amazing, amazing people. How I've do been you, very blessed. Yeah. How do you find or keep that authenticity when sometimes, like I said, especially in that entertainment world, there there sometimes is a lot of non-authentic people? Well, I mean, you know, in a sense, we all vibrate at a certain level and that vibration brings like yeah. vibration to you. And so, honestly, the people that I worked with are very authentic people. They are who they say they are. And they're the same person in every room. And so a person who values that valued me and valued my, you know, my help and my advice resonated for them because it was part of who they were as well. So I don't do well with phonies. You know, I don't do well with people who care more about perception than the way it is. And so my, my list as a, a literary agent represented my beliefs and my values. Mm. And, and therefore I attracted people who had similar values, even though amazingly, it's I'm happy to tell you this, all these women that you're mentioning are just as amazing in private as they are on the stage. Which is so unbelievably beautiful to hear as well, because that's what you want from people that have done such amazing work. So, so that's Completely. great to hear. And you obviously, as we all do, have different hiccups, should I say, in our life. And your husband was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. Can you tell us about that and how, I mean, you had such a busy, busy, successful job. How did you navigate that time? Absolutely. I, my husband was um, diagnosed with prostate cancer. He's perfect. Um, and that was about 12 years ago now. So we're in a in a really fantastic space. But my daughter was turning 14 on the day he had to have his emergency surgery. And I had never asked anybody to help me with my kids. My mom, of course. But um, yes. I felt that, yeah. But I always. felt that being strong, right, of course, always. I couldn't do it without <laughs> my mom. But I felt wrongly that um, being strong and being you know, a good friend meant never taking, only giving. And I prided myself on this strength 
And I really felt that my relationships were actually equal and intimate, even though I never asked for anything and I only gave. Um, but when my daughter was turning 14 on the day of my husband's surgery, I had to ask a friend for the first thing I'd ever asked anybody. And that was to throw a birthday party for my daughter. So a big ask. And to this day, my daughter will still say that was the best birthday party she ever had. <laughs> she loved it so much. My friend, my friend, Pamela Bell gave her the best party. And it really opened the floodgates for me to realize that reciprocity is key to real intimacy. And while I had been a great giver, I hadn't been a great receiver. And that had created a distance with people um, because I didn't need anything and I didn't need anybody's help. And once those floodgates opened and my husband had to recover for quite some time, I mean, people were bringing me beautiful meals. And I mean, the things that I allowed myself to receive and feel worthy of were truly transformational. So, you know, I think it's very hard for us as, you know, certain kind of women who think that they have to do it all themselves and that if they need help, it's a form of weakness. And the opposite is true. The opposite is true. And people, when they love you, they want to be of service yes. and they want to feel like they're needed. And I was I, keeping people from that until I had that lesson. Why do you think it took you that long to do that? It was a story I was telling myself. I had a limiting story. And the limiting story was that I am most valuable when I am useful to others. Mm. And that story was almost uh, precognitive. Like it wasn't like I actually, if I thought those words, I would have said, of course not, that's ridiculous. But there was a pressing belief inside of me that I had to be useful for people to want to be in relationship with me. And um, it really took something as big as my husband's cancer for me to realize that I was actually keeping a a distance between people who I, I loved and who wanted to love me, but I wasn't letting them, you know, be reciprocal in that relationship. And so, you know, I had to relearn stuff. I had to relearn, you know, my mother didn't have a mother. Her mother died when she was four. And so I took from her a lesson of like, of independence that yes. really wasn't necessarily the whole story. You spoke before about how you've taken a few years now when you're doing this silent pause, which is such a beautiful thing. What made you want to do that? Well, I mean, I so didn't want to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's how I realized I had to. I mean, there's that old phrase about if you don't have 20 minutes to meditate, you need two hours. Yes. Right? So I was so determined to stay in motion and to stay useful. <laughs> and um in that early days of COVID and I closed, uh, I closed down um, a women's tour called Together Live. I did have to publish this anthology of the speakers called Hungry Hearts, which is absolutely beautiful. And I highly recommend it to all your readers, incredible writers, trans yes. people, Muslim, every black, brown, gay, straight, every kind of person you could possibly imagine sharing their stories of courage and belonging and forgiveness um, I promise your listeners they will find themselves in at least several of the stories. Um, but, I, but I had to do those responsibilities early on. And I found myself just feeling like as soon as I finished my responsibilities, I could feel the need for stillness and for silence. And to hear my own voice, which in a way, I've been working since I was 14. Like I, I really didn't know what I would sound like or feel like when my first thought wasn't about somebody else. Mm. and you know, I had to reconnect with my own still small voice and find, you know, peace inside of me. And nature was the key to me for that. I mean, I, I always loved nature, but it was like something I did on vacation. And now nature is something that I, I connect with every day. And it really has taught me about forgiveness and simplicity and patience and I don't know, humility. And, um, I wake up every day now and I just think, what do I need to do to protect my peace? And that's my priority. Wow. What a beautiful place to be in. I've heard you say that along your journey, you have found that the universe has given you breadcrumbs along the way, these beautiful synchronicities. And there's a beautiful saying, we have to live life looking forward, but we only understand it looking back. And I wonder for totally. you how you even began to notice those things and, and, 
how they all sort of aligned in the end. Well, I, I, I love that, that, that phrase because it, it's so true. Um, we have to balance, um, it's sort of a balance between making it happen and letting it happen. And that's mm. like a lifetime's work, yes. you know? Um, so for during my sacred pause, um, I've been doing something I call the surrender experiment. And actually inadvertently, Sarah, you're part of that because the surrender experiment is I, I receive incoming and then I just sit with it. And um, no outgoing, no outgoing. I don't reach out in any way. I just receive incoming. I pay attention to what, what's incoming. And then I, I say to myself, what is the universe, what does the universe want to show me here? And in, in your case, I know it was a kindred spirit. And so I'm here for that. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, I think moving into New York city, which I thought was the end of my life. And I quickly realized it was the beginning of my life. And, then I got booted out of high school for not, basically for non-attendance, um, <laughs> which was horrible. But, but, the, but the headmaster at the school told me that I had to leave because there wasn't one single person that would recommend me to college, that I had failed to distinguish myself. And I remember going home and thinking, well, failed to distinguish myself. Like, I would love to turn the ship around, but I don't, I don't even know how. I have no skill set. I have no tools and I ended up going to another school where the headmaster said, look, I'm not going to call your mom when you don't come to school because I can see your mom doesn't have that kind of control over you. She said, I'm going to pay you a dollar a day to come to school. Wow. And a dollar a day, that was a lot of money to me. It was pizza and a soda. But also she was the first person that sort of leveled with me and treated me like with the respect of just saying, look, this is your life. There, nobody else is going to come here to save you. And by giving me that ability to have a second chance and helping me to turn the ship around, that led me to Kenyon College, which was where I loved, discovered my love of literature. So each one of those breadcrumbs, each one of those moments that I thought, why is this happening to me? And then I realized, oh, no, no, this is happening for me. Yes. And that can be so amazing. But at the same time, when we're, when we're in that that moment where we're thinking, why is this happening to me? It can be hard to shake. And I mean, we've all had that. You mentioned your husband, who is obviously fine now, but his diagnosis. And then for a moment, I think everyone would think, why? Why? And it is in that reflection that we realise why and the lessons. But I, I wonder for you, especially at such a young age, when you had that, that principle say to you, basically in not so many terms, we don't think you'll amount to much. How do you not take that and go, that become your narrative, like I'm not going to amount to much? Well, I mean, certainly I'm sure for every person that took that as a challenge, there are 10 kids that let it fold them. Yes. And I just, I feel tremendous suffering for people that have been limited by the limited view of others. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that certainly could have crushed me. And maybe when you think back to me telling you that I thought I had to be useful in order to be worthy of love, maybe that somehow came from that feeling of you failed to distinguish yourself. I mean, I couldn't think of a more damning sentence, you know? I mean, and he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Um, but I realized then that I was 100% responsible for my own life. And I mean, if I could say one thing to young people, and I have my own children, so I do say it to them, you are 100% responsible for your life. And the sooner you realize, the sooner you take control, and the sooner you can get on your purpose path. Because when people are always blaming, oh, well, I, I didn't show up for my interview because my alarm didn't go off, or because my friend said they would wake me up, but they didn't, or, you know, because of this, this, and this, but not starting with an I sentence, mm. it's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a convenient way to not take personal responsibility. And that doesn't mean that the things that have happened to you are your fault. It's, it's, it's a different, there's a distinction there. Um, but, you know, this is, as Mary Oliver says, our one messy, precious life. Yes. And like, what are we going to do with it? Right. And so I think that a big piece of kind of taking control of your narrative is realizing that you are a hundred percent responsible for your own life. Yes. That's such wise advice. And you mentioned before about the push-pull of life, which is inevitable, and especially in a job that you were doing for so many years. How did you manage that? Because it is, and I talk about it quite a bit with, with people, there is that thing with 
the universal laws where, yes, you need to put out to receive, but at the same time, you can't push too much because if you push too much, you're in this, this pushy energy. So I'd love to know how you balance that. I love that question. And I love that you say energy because I think energy is incredibly important and even transactions have an energy to them. Like even, you know, even just plain, I took the taxi, now I'm giving you the money and and we've had a transaction. There's energy to those transactions. Mm -hmm. And so what I feel is that the intention Mm -hmm. is the the thing that drives the energy. And so if the intention is pure and is transparent, then I I feel the energy will follow in a positive way. And you can find the balance between you know, pushing to make it happen and also allowing it to emerge and happen. Um, you know, it's something we have to practice like all things. Um, I've been too eager at times and I've kind of, you know, had a little bit of a social hangover the next day where I'm like, ah, why did I say that the third time? But then I remember, oh, I know why I did that because I was really excited and I really wanted to make that connection. And, and so, you know, part of my my growing up is just to forgive my enthusiasm, you know, to forgive my gummy smile when I just get so excited about something. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not cool. I'm not cool, but I am real. And I do have a, you know, a giant sense of excitement and curiosity about the world. And so I think that when you're coming from that authentic place and when your intention is pure and transparent, I, I really want to make a point yes. about that because. I think that it's okay, whatever your whatever your your intention is, just be just be honest about it. Just be mm. just be clear. And I think the pushy thing comes when you're actually not being transparent about yes. your intention. I wonder for you, a woman that has heard many, many stories over your life and not just stories of people who want to publish books, but but generally just stories. I've heard a lot of stories too, being in the profession that I'm in. And one of the stories that sticks out to me the most is by someone who is not well known at all, is barely known. And it was a man that was 76 and he worked at the Jewish Hevra Kadisha, which is where it's like the burial site. It's the morgue. And he told me his life story and about how he cared for the dead bodies. And I remember the few nights after we did that interview, I never wake up in the middle of the night. No, I would wake up, not because I was triggered by the stories, but I couldn't stop thinking about this man and his journey and his life. And it was heart-wrenching but beautiful at the same time and something that will always stay with me. And I wonder for you, is there a story or that you can remember that? really hit you in a way and maybe because it was familiar and reflective of your life or something that you learned from it that you could share? Yeah. Well, this, first of all, I love that story and thank you for sharing it with me. The story that popped into my head is actually a story I saw on Dateline. It's, a, it's like, a, a U, like a U.S. investigative story. Yes. And I've, I, I just blew my mind in a way that I can't describe because it's not, but I'll tell you the story. So it was this woman and I don't know, Jewish is our theme, I guess, because we have the Jewish connections. <laughs> um, so uh, she was uh, a Jewish woman in the 60s. She was a civil rights uh, activist and she fell in love with a another person in the movement who happened to be black. And her family was like, no, like we don't accept this romance. We will not accept it. We will not give our blessing. We will not pay for college if you continue with this man. But she was in love with him and she got found herself pregnant and she told him she was so excited and he felt that it would not be good for him in his rising status in the civil rights movement if he had, you know, a, a, a white wife and a mixed race baby. And so he told her he just couldn't do it. And so with no family support and with her heartbroken, she went to one of these homes for unwed mothers And she lived there. I mean, it's hard for us to believe these homes really existed, but they did. She lived there. She had her baby. She gave it up for adoption. She went back to her parents. They paid for college. She ultimately went to medical school, became a doctor, got married. But the hole in her heart was so intense that 
she really couldn't be as present for her family as she ever wanted to. And when her fourth child went to high school, uh, graduated from high school and was moving to college, she said to her husband, I'm moving with him. I have no idea why, but something is pulling me to move with him. And he knew that this hole had been in her heart all these years, every year on the baby's birthday, she would have a cake and the kids would have to sing happy birthday to the sibling of theirs that they never met. I mean, she, like we were saying earlier, she had been authentic with her children. So they really knew her. So she ended up moving to Ithaca where her son, even though she was from Texas, where her son was going to college at Cornell. And the first day she got there, she decided she needed her own therapist, which she'd never been in therapy. She opened up the yellow pages and she found a therapist and she went to the therapist and told her story. And the woman sat silently and said, I'm breaking every rule of therapy, but I'm quite certain that my husband and I adopted your son <gasps> 27 years ago. Everything you're saying lines up, including his birthday. And, and that's it. And they had raised their son to have so much honor for their adopted mother, like for, for their for his biological mother, that that when they were able to bring the families together, it was pure love and gratitude. And she ends up she was a grandmother. <laughs> that Ingra- is incredible. incredible. Right? I know, I know. It's my it's one of my favorite stories because first of all, it's beautiful, but it really shows that the universe has a plan. Yes. Yes. And I think it's exactly, sorry, what I was thinking for anyone out there that doesn't believe that there is a life beyond what we can see and that life happens for you and not to you. And it goes back to that. We only understand life looking back, but we have to live it looking forward. Even in those darkest moments, there is light. There is light. And there are cords of connection. Yeah. And if, you know, and, and if you open yourself they're, they're, they're trying to get your attention. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that we are so busy being certain and being like directionally focused. And I think the universe is there going, Hey, over here, over here. And we're busy looking over in the other direction. And, um, I represented a book by a incredible uh, psychic medium named Laura Lynn Jackson. I uh, cannot yes. recommend this book highly enough. Yes. And she published two books, one called The Light Between Us and one called Signs. But I mean, miracle upon miracle. I mean, you cannot read this book or these books and not begin to question your belief system. Absolutely. Um, We're all connected and love never dies. It just changes shape. Yeah. We're all connected is the biggest thing. And I think in the world today, with COVID and so much that has gone on, we can feel isolated and it's just about me and my family or the little group that I'm in. But really, as we all know, if we allow ourselves to open ourselves and realise that that none of us are separate, we're, we're all connected in some way or another and we're here, as Rhonda says, to walk each other home. My full body chills <laughs> and one of my favourite quotes of all time. And I think that that myth of separation is what's causing so much division in the world, Mm. you know, so much depression and anxiety and alcoholism and disordered eating. And it's because we think we're in it alone or it's just me versus my family. I mean, one of my pet peeves is when, you know, somebody finally understands gay rights because they have a gay family member. It's like, why do you have to have a a personal experience with something Mm. before you understand that every single person deserves love and safety and freedom. Like it's just one of these things where sometimes, unfortunately, people have to have a firsthand experience before they understand the importance. It's so interesting. And I'd love to hear, obviously you told us a little bit to do with your sacred pause, but do you have spiritual practices that you do every day? I, I, I do. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process. So it used to be very strict meditation, you know, very strict kind of caring for myself. But now in this period of my life and people keep saying, how long is this period? I'll let you know. I mean, my mantra, the, I don't know. My mantra these days is more will be revealed. So, you know, that's it. I'm just following the unfolding. I'm watching what emerges. I'm watching what feels good and what feels limiting or feels, or feels not empowering or feels somehow, you know, diminishing. Um, And so it's almost like the way that I described it to my, to my daughter is it's like, I'm driving by my high beams at night. I can only see six feet in front of me. 
But because I trust the universe, I know I'm going to find my way all the way home. Mm. I don't even question it. And so my spiritual practice these days are, is very relaxed. I walk every day. I love to, to commune with the trees and the birds. You know, I still meditate every morning, but I just meditate sitting up in bed, my t-shirt and boxers are on for 20 minutes. Um, just simple, simple. And then, you know, something I do, which is I just do for fun is whenever I'm out and about, I just try to see how I could raise the vibration of everybody around me, mm. you know, to use another roomy quote, wherever I stand, I try to be the soul of that place. Mm, so beautiful. What have you learned about yourself during this time? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I learned that I require a lot less stimulation than I thought. Um, I've learned that um, when I really kind of remove myself from transactional relationships, I'm actually very comfortable with, with reciprocity, with giving and receiving. And um, that when I'm not always thinking of how I could be of service, I learned how I can be served, you know, how my cup can be filled up with the love and the, and the inspiration that I see all around me. Having the busy job that you did, how did you manage to still be, I mean, I, I I've only met you today, so I don't know what you were like, but I feel that you weren't so different. How did you manage to be able to ground yourself and not let the noise of this huge role and the world that you're in fill your mind? And I ask this honestly as well, myself and my job and everything I have to do and working for a huge media company and sometimes going between that feeling very grounded then also being thrown into dealing with all the things that come with a big podcast and working at a big media company of course I mean we're all we're all forgetful spiritualists, right? So yeah. you're on your path, you're on your path, you're off the path, you're off the path. You know, it's, we're all, you know, it's, it's always about the process. And, and for me, I judge it by how fast did I recognize that I was off path? You know, how quickly did I get back on path? Um, you know, listen, you're a young working mom, you have a busy job. So you might get into a practice of like sp scanning an email for problems. Like, what do I need to solve? Mm. Solve, solve, solve. And, and when you're solving, you're not really, you're not present. You're not really there in the same way. You're not patient necessarily in the same way. So that's always been my battle, you know, is just to make sure that I'm not scanning for problems that I can yes. solve, but instead just being present. Um, and so, you know, I would say that um, patience, you know, I'm really, I'm just really um, kind of Deep, digging deeply into patience and, you know, not waiting. That's different. Waiting is different. That's, there's an energy of like my turn. When's it my turn or when's it coming? You know, there's, there's a lack in, yes. in, in, in waiting, but patience is different. It's kind of exciting. It's like, Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what Sarah's going to say next. Yeah. That's beautiful. Jennifer, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Interesting. Um, well, two things come to mind. One is that my grandfather used to say, it's good to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. And that's hilarious. <laughs> but also as somebody who can sometimes have an open mind so open that my brains fall out, it was excellent advice. So I think it's important to always remember to use your discernment, to use your discernment, have an open mind. But if something doesn't resonate, if something doesn't feel right, then to recognize that and to allow your own discernment to help you in, in, in making directional decisions. So that was one piece of advice I really enjoyed. Were you going to ask me a question about that? Yeah, I'd love to know how do you, because people ask me this a lot, how do you know when it doesn't feel right? And I know that seems like, well, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, are you able to express how you know that? Well, you know, again, that's a practice and that's, yeah. You know, that's where warriors on earth, more ability to practice. But usually what ends up happening with people is that in retrospect, they realize, you know what? I didn't trust that person. Yes. I don't know why I went. I don't know why I went forward with it. And so I think that when you start looking in retrospect and seeing times that you didn't listen to the whispers and you didn't listen to the hmms, um, that's when you start thinking, oh, maybe I need to actually fine tune my abilities and, and, and so for me, as soon as something makes me, I call it like jellyfish things. 
Like, you know, you ever go out for business lunch with another woman and she seems perfectly nice and you're trying to connect. But when you leave, you sort of feel like, I don't know, your feelings are hurt. Like you don't know, you can't put your finger on it, but yes. like every interaction, she was somehow diminishing you or making yes. you feel small or... And so I call those jellyfish things because you don't really feel it until you get out of the ocean, right? You're in the ocean, you're having a great time, you come out and you're like, wow, I'm stinging all over the place. Yeah. And so I feel like if we start listening to the little stings, and for me, that could mean this person is misunderstanding me. This person is taking their worldview and, and, and putting it on mine. An example of that would be if I said I was involved with a charity, let's just say and the person said, oh, that must be a good place to network. Right away, I would think to myself, well, that now tells me something about you, yes. but that's fine. That's fine. But no, I don't, I don't do charity as a, as a way to network. So, you know, would I want to move forward with a person who, who is trying to put their worldview on me? I would hesitate before I would do that. And those hesitations are those little voices for me. Mm. So when you leave somebody and you feel like a million bucks and you feel full of energy and, and full of inspiration, those are the people that you want to spend your time, you know, with. And, you know, you want to plant a seed on, in them or you want to receive a seed from them. That's a beautiful thing. But when you leave a situation and you feel less than or diminished or triggered, those are good things to pay attention to. Do you surround yourself now with people who feel like that light? I do. I do. And that's why I responded to you. Oh, I, that's I, I, so I, could, nice. I could recognize that vibration from you. So yes, I, I do. And it's wonderful now because I'm not in the entertainment business anymore. So people aren't trying to like give me a book or trying to get something from me. So my friends now are my acupuncturist and my real estate agent. And, you know, I'm able to meet people and to connect with them on just a soul to soul level and because the transaction has been removed for now, which doesn't mean that I couldn't start a business with one of these people if something emerged organically, yes. um, you know, who knows what will happen. But that the, 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 the primary connection is not one of what can I get from you and what can you mm. get, get from me. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because over the years, when I got into my spiritual practice, and I know a lot of people find this, then my friendships, a lot stayed the same, but some shifted. And as you said, I started before, I started attracting a lot of people of the same vibration as me and the same light. And it's interesting because it almost happens sometimes overnight where one minute you seem to have all these like negative things that occur and you're coming across people that might not be of the highest vibration and you're ruffling up against them at work or something. And then when you change, everything around you starts changing. 100%. It's incredible 100%. to see. No, 100%. Because we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. Yeah. So, so of course, you change, everything changes. And I mean, I have little, I have little like, clues for myself. I don't need them as much now, but it used to be if one person was mad at me, um, I would just look at it for, for face value. If a second person is mad at me, I would say, oh, maybe it's a coincidence. But as soon as I had a third interaction that was unpleasant, I would say, stop, stop, look and listen. Automatically with a third thing, I would say, okay, this is you. This is what you are putting out there. So let's get underneath. Let's find out what's happening for you. Let's get curious because I think, you know, people get into a headspace where they're like, oh, well, this person did this and that person did this and this person is thwarting, the, you know, my, my ambitions. And they're not looking in the mirror. Mm. And so I think once that you connect to that sort of spiritual practice, that, you know, higher self, however you want to describe it, the universe, God, I don't care what you call it. I think that you shift and then everything around you shifts. Mm. And I've seen crazy miracles. Just the other day, a friend of mine called me and said that she had a dream about me, but in the dream, I was a tarantula. And I was like, oh, that sounds horrible. She's like, no, I looked it up. She goes, I looked it up and it's like this fertility thing and it's magic. And I still thought it sounded horrible. But nonetheless, I appreciated the, the Native American medicine that she claimed that a tarantula was. So the next day I go for a hike and I'm telling my son this story. And on the hike, a giant tarantula crosses our path. I am 55 years old, Sarah. I have never seen a tarantula in my life. 
never, never, never. And there's a tarantula crossing my path. I had to take 15 pictures of it because I just couldn't believe it. It's amazing. So it's amazing, right? But this, this, this shit happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I'll never forget. I was doing this podcast and I was getting grief from someone. And basically I remember asking the universe for a sign and I I was like, please just give me a butterfly and let it come so close to me that I realize that it's a sign, not just a random butterfly flying past. Anyway, I was going for a walk with a friend really early one morning and it was during COVID. So we were wearing masks and I kind of pulled my mask down to talk to her. Jennifer. I had to stop because a butterfly literally <laughs> flew into my mouth. You can't make my this mouth. Shit up. You cannot it make this right. shit up. I know. I know. So I just feel like people who don't want to believe are missing out. It's like yeah. you guys don't get the you don't get the most delicious part of life. Because if you ask for signs, if you're open to connections and coincidences and incoming. These are all the ways that the universe is trying to get us, get our attention and get us on our path. And, you know, I've had people argue with me that purpose is like for rich people. And I'm like, that is such bullshit because every single person who has breath has a purpose. Mm. And whether your purpose is to make the most delicious soup in the world and to nurture people's soul with that soup that you sell out of a truck, I don't care. Your purpose doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be on a human world level. To be, to be important and necessary ingredient. I mean, we're all here, I believe, to make the world a better place. Absolutely. And our, pur- our purpose is our arrow. Mm. What is your greatest hope for society today? Oh, okay. Well, I, I guess to keep with the stories, I guess my hope is that we get to a place where instead of hiding our scars we realize that that is our scars are the things that make us remarkable and unique Mm. and we can share them and connect. And then we will realize as a result of sharing and connecting that under the skin, we're more alike than we are different. Yes. What are we fighting for? It's so true. And I think there's something in, and I definitely know this and I know that you do something in making people feel comfortable to share their scars as well, because a lot of the time, It's all about, like you mentioned earlier, the Instagram and the way that we are perceived to other people that, God forbid, we should tell them that we have some struggles in our life. But the struggles is what makes us connect with one another and realize that everyone's real. And doesn't matter how famous or rich you are, you, everyone will have some sort of struggle in their life. Absolutely. And, and I've told the story about Jeanette Walls when she was writing The Glass Castle. She thought that when people heard that she'd eaten out of a garbage can, that she, people would throw garbage at her. Like, she honestly still had that little girl inside of her that was so ashamed. And instead, people stood in line around the block just to meet her mm. and to say, sometimes that happened to me too, and I was too ashamed to tell anybody. And mostly to recognize that her resilience was an inspiration to all. And so people think that if we knew the worst parts about about them, they would be least lovable. And the ironic truth is that those things are most likely what would make them most lovable, Mm. most incredible. Jennifer, do you have a favorite prayer or saying? Hmm. I would say my favorite sort of saying is um, from St. Julian of Norwich, the great 14th century mystic, all shall be well and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And that has given me tremendous comfort. And sometimes it's been literally like a life raft for me. Mm. And I just know it's so true. And then the other one that I kind of say, I think I might've invented it myself, but I don't know because I'm a great follower of thoughts. Um, but is it's not what happens, it's what happens next. Mm. And, you know, that's what I realized when I got kicked out of high school. It's like, you know, my life isn't over unless I make it over. Mm. And so what happens, okay, that happened. But what happens next is where you have all your power. And I just, I, I like to remind myself of that. That's beautiful. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I think the lesson that's taken me the longest to learn is that um, everybody doesn't view love and relationships the same way. 
Um, I recently learned that I'm an eight in the Enneagram. And, you know, the way that the eight loves is like, if I love you, then we're one person. You're me. Any battle you're fighting is a battle we are fighting. And that's, you know, that's a fierce way that I love. But then I project that kind of loving onto other people. And it's just simply not true. And so I was very hurt when I left my work to find that a lot of these relationships that I thought were family, people I called sister and brother, it ends up that they were just very decorated transactional relationships. And that's okay. But it's just, I, it wasn't transparent to me. And I was a little bit like um, from the Snoopy cartoon, Lucy with the football. It's like, oh no, not again. I missed the head fake again. So that's the lesson that's taken me the hardest to learn. Mm. How did you realize that they weren't what you thought that they were? Well, some of them just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so some of them just, you know, when I wasn't able to be of service, when I wasn't useful, yes. they, you know, they, they weren't there anymore. Mm. And, um, you know, that was, a, that was tough to swallow. But I felt very necessary because I'm not in that place anymore. Like I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not on earth to be useful to others. You know, I'm just, just to, just to be alive and just to breathe and just to be in nature. Like I'm just enough as I am. Beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? Ooh, wow, wonderful questions. A life of greatness to me is a person who lives their, their purpose and who is authentic and transparent and lifts others whenever they get the opportunity. Beautiful. Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, thank you so much for being such a ray of light and for sharing your story and all the other people's stories. We are truly grateful. Thank you. It was an absolute honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.